Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so appreciate the way Tim has led us this morning, this idea of creating space. I don't know about you, but I need that this morning. We want to continue to do that. In fact, Tim's going to be back up here a little bit later to, to lead us in another part of the, this, the um, morning after we teach the message and look at God's word together. But before I get into the passage that we're going to examine this morning, I just want to share a couple of things by way of announcement. Number one is we have a baptism service coming up, and I couldn't be more excited about this. If you think about what baptism is, it's an opportunity for anyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ to kind of go public with their faith, right? To sort of proclaim before their family of faith and anyone else who might hear of it or might be in attendance in the, in the audience that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, the symbolism of I have died with Christ and have now been raised back to new life. And so I want to say this. Some of you in this room have never been baptized. Uh, if you've come to a place at any point in your life where you've put your faith in Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and secure your eternity and grant you new life, but you've never obeyed Jesus and his example of baptism, I just want to invite you to pray about that and, and consider it. It's not necessary to be saved. We think scripture is real clear on that. There's only one thing necessary to be saved. That's our faith in Jesus. But it is a symbol. It's kind of like if you're married, you wear a wedding ring to, to, to show everyone, hey, I'm married. Baptism is that symbol that does that. So if you'd consider that, uh, it'll be a blessing to our body. Uh, I'm looking forward to this service. We're going to have kids. We're going to have students. We're going to have adults being baptized. We're going to celebrate that together. I don't think there's anything better we can celebrate as a body of Christ, as a family of faith, than watching someone go public with their faith, so to speak. So we're looking forward to that on June 28th. If you want to register for that, you need to do that in the next two weeks. Uh, and you can find the link on our website. Just go to the Main Fellowship Bible Church uh, website. You'll see a little picture of baptism, and you can click on that and register. The other thing I want to mention, from time to time, uh, we hear of people that are undergoing significant health challenges or about to go into something significant, and we want to just take a, a moment as a body to reflect and to invite you to pray for them. And we have one of those moments coming up. Many of you know Scott McIntyre. Scott's on our worship team from time to time. Uh, he plays the keyboard. I know you see a number of keyboard players come through with the way we do our team ministry. But Scott is a young man in his late 20s, and he's going to be having a kidney transplant coming up uh, real soon. In fact, I want to give you the date just so you can be praying for Scott. It's June 4th. Scott's been through a lot of health challenges, and one of the things I most appreciate about him is he's always giving glory to God for sustaining him and giving him the strength to do the ministry through music that God has given him to do. And uh, this season of Scott's life is no different. So he has invited you to pray with him, and I'd like to invite us as a body to pray for him. And in fact, if you want to show up in a real tangible way, this coming Saturday at 2 p.m., we'll be right here in this room. A group of us will be here praying for Scott, and we want to invite anyone, whether you know Scott or not, to come and join us if you have an opportunity to for about an hour to pray for Scott this Saturday at 2 p.m. And there's another opportunity, too, is we're going to be providing some meals post-surgery to Scott and Christina as Scott recovers. And if you're interested in providing a meal, uh, you, can, you can find Tim Head after the service, and he'll give you the information that's needed for that. 
Well, we have joined together, as Tim's already invited us into, to experience God, to worship him, to understand that he is present with us. We don't even have to ask him to be present. He already is. And one of the ways we do that week in, week out, is by opening up God's word together. So I want to invite you to do that. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14. We're in this series on the life of Abraham. And uh, I don't know about you, but for me, I found myself in this story. I found myself and my own faith in this journey with Abraham's struggles and some of Abraham's victories. And the way that I'd summarize where we've been on this series so far is to say we recognize as a body of believers, those that are struggling to walk well in faith, that we have a reality that we live in that life is not perfect. (laughs) That's an understatement. In fact, I'd say it this way. Life's not the way God intended it to be. This creation that we're existing in is fallen, it's broken. We experience the effects of that every single moment, whether you're conscious of it or not. So we have this reality over here, the brokenness that we're living in, even the brokenness of our own lives. But on the other side, we have a promise. The promise that in the midst of the brokenness, God has not forgotten about us. That he's come through Jesus Christ to rescue us. That he's preparing a place for us so that we can one day live in an existence, live in a world without the brokenness where things are made new again. The way we summarize that is the people of God living in the place of God with access to the presence of God. That's what we have to look forward to. We experience it now in part. We will experience it then in full. So what does it look like to live in the tension between the two? That's what Abraham was called to do. So as we've been walking through this man's life, I hope that you've sort of been asking yourselves, where am I? Where is my faith? How does my faith reflect this journey of up and down, up and down that Abraham has been in? I know mine certainly does. Well, this particular chapter we're in, in the Abraham story, Genesis 14, is one of the high points of Abraham's faith journey. So last week, Lloyd was here, and he talked to you about the first half of that chapter. You remember, Abraham takes up his sword, and he goes after this invading army that had captured Lot and Lot's family and all of his possessions. You see, Lot had kind of got caught up in this power struggle between these kings. But Abram rouses his men, forms a coalition with a few other kings. They go after the uh, enemy army. They attack them at night. They win the victory. And where our text is going to come back, this, uh, going to show up this morning is Abram is coming back south towards Sodom to restore Lot and his family to the place where they've chosen to live. And he's bringing with him all the spoils of war. Picture animals, picture gold, picture wealth, picture slaves, men and women, boys and girls that had been captured and carted off. And now Abram has interceded and he's bringing them now back. And as you think about this passage, I want you to think about this is Abraham living out his faith in the fullest extent that he can. So last week, Lloyd left you with the question. He said, is God calling you to take up your sword or is God calling you to let go? And we see in chapter 14, Abraham doing both of those things. First half, taking up his sword. Now we're going to look at the second half where he's going to open his hands and he's going to let go. So let's look at the text together. I'm going to Begin in verse 17. I want to just start with two verses. We'll read the first two verses and then we'll pause and talk about them for a few minutes. Then after his return, talking of course of Abram, from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, 
brought out bread and wine. Now he, Melchizedek, was a priest of God Most High. Very interesting contrast that the author is setting up in these two verses between two kings. So on the one hand, you have the king of Sodom. Now Sodom, as you know, was the evil city that will later be destroyed by God. And the hearers of this story, as it was retold and then later written down by Moses later on, they would have known what was going to happen to Sodom eventually. So the very name Sodom would bring to their mind the same thing it brings to your mind. You associate Sodom with evil. You associate Sodom with rebellion. The ancient Jews would have associated it with the same thing. So you have this contrast between the king of Sodom, this evil place, and this man named Melchizedek, this king named Melchizedek. Here's what you need to understand. Melchizedek is a name that brings together two Hebrew words, Melech and Sadiq. Melech Sadiq, Melchizedek. Melech means king, Sadiq means righteousness. So his very name indicates this was the king of righteousness, the righteous king, contrasted with the king of Sodom, the evil place. Now both of these men come out to meet Abram as he's coming back with all the spoils of war back down toward Sodom. And these two men have very different objectives, very different purposes for meeting Abram. And we're going to see how that plays out in the passage. One more thing about this mysterious guy, Melchizedek. He is from Salem. He's king of Salem. Guess what Salem means? It means peace. Same Hebrew word as shalom. You've probably heard of that word. Salem, shalom, same word, peace. Now, as best as we can figure, and scholars are fairly unanimous in this, the ancient city of Salem was Jerusalem before it was called Jerusalem. Right before the Hebrew people possessed it. It was called Salem. So here's this king of Jerusalem, the city of peace, Salem, that's coming out. The king of righteousness is his name. He's coming out to meet Abram as he's coming back from the war. And you have this other king as well, the king of evil. So you have righteousness and evil being contrasted. And they both meet Abram. They're both going to offer Abram something. And he's going to respond to them very differently. And those are the contrasts that the text is setting up for us. So let's, uh, let's keep rolling in our text. I want you to see Melchizedek and what he offers to Abram, and then we'll contrast that with the king of Sodom and what he offers. So let's back up to verse 18, and we'll read 18 again, and then keep going through verse 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He, Melchizedek, gave him Abram. No, I'm sorry, I said that backwards. He, Abram, gave him Melchizedek a tenth of all. Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all. Now, this is interesting. This king who is described as a priest of God appears apparently out of nowhere. We had not heard anything about any other priest up till this point in time in the narrative. We'd not heard of this king before up till this moment. And he shows up, and then after this passage is done, he's going to disappear just as quickly as he showed up. Genesis 14 is the only place in the whole Abraham narrative, in fact, the whole book of Genesis, where you hear anything about this man, Melchizedek. And here he is, right in this passage. Now, just because so little is said about him doesn't mean he's unimportant. In fact, you'll see 
how important this king of righteousness is to Abraham and how important he actually is to us. That's where we're going to go in a minute. Now, what is a priest? You have to understand what a priest is to understand what's being said about Melchizedek. I won't ask for a show of hands, but some of you grew up in a Christian tradition, maybe the Roman Catholic tradition or maybe the Eastern Orthodox tradition, where priests are still active today. That's not the case in the Protestant tradition, of course. So what is a priest? You can have a picture of a priest if you think about Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox. A priest is essentially a, essentially a mediator between sinful man and holy God. A priest stands in the gap. So in ancient times, in the ancient nation of Israel, a priest would make the sacrifice. So if if it was, for example, um, a time for you to come to the temple to sacrifice, you would purchase the lamb or you would select the lamb from your flock or the goat or the bull, whatever it was. You'd bring it to the priest. He would slay that animal for you, lay it before the altar, burn it, and the smoke would rise up to the heaven just like this picture behind me. And the priest would declare, God has received this sacrifice. Now fast forward to modern times. If you grew up in a Roman Catholic context, you would go to a confessional booth to confess your sins. Who are you confessing them to? Well, ultimately God, but it goes through the priest. The mediator, right? The priest is a human being standing between sinful man and holy God. That's the purpose. That's the nature. That's the design of a priest. Now we don't have priests in the Protestant tradition. We'll talk about why that is toward the end of the message. But for now, I just want you to have this definition in your head of a priest as a go-between, a mediator, an intercessor between sinful man and holy God. So Melchizedek shows up. Now, what's interesting about Melchizedek is that he was not only a priest, but he was a king. Now, to any Hebrew ears hearing this in ancient days as the story was retold and then eventually, you know, written down by Moses and they would have read it, they would have immediately thought, how could he have been a priest and a king? Because you see, God, when he established the government in Israel, separated those two offices. You have priests over here, you have a king over here. A king couldn't be a priest, priest couldn't be a king. It was a little bit like the balance of power in our government. You have the executive branch, you've got the judicial branch, etc. So here you have the separation of the offices, and yet Melchizedek, who precedes all the Levitical priests, of course, in other words, the Hebrew priests that, that will come from the tribe of Levi. Levi hasn't been born yet, of course. He's Abraham's great-grandson. That's all going to come into play. Before any of them, you have a priest, Melchizedek, who's also a king. And this is the first time anyone has been described as a priest in the Bible, is this man. So you start to get in your mind, there's something interesting going on with this mysterious figure named Melchizedek. Let's look at what he offers to Abram and then how Abram responds. Uh, Take your eyes and go back to verse 18, if you will, just in, in your copy of God's word. Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. That's his first offering. Now, this would have been sustenance for the troops, but by the fact that it was wine, it indicates it was a little more than just provision and sustenance. It was a celebratory food. It was a royal food. So more than likely, Melchizedek brought out a feast for Abram and his men as they returned back from the battle to celebrate the victory. 
And I imagine that during this celebratory victory feast, Melchizedek stands up and he gives this powerful blessing. He speaks it over Abram and all the people who are listening. So let's unpack this blessing and see what we can learn from it. Uh, Let's put it back on the screen. In fact, here's the blessing of Melchizedek. He says, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Now, a couple of key words, phrases, ideas from this blessing. The word blessed occurs three times and it immediately takes your mind back to Genesis 12, which was the last time when that many blessing, blessed blessings occur in two verses. Genesis 12, of course, is when God originally shows up to Abraham and said, you will be blessed and you will be a blessing to others. All the nations will be blessed through you. And so now in your head, your mind should go back to Genesis 12 and you should think, that's starting to happen. Abram just was victorious in this battle. He's got all this stuff. This man shows up out of nowhere and repronounces the blessing of God on Abram as a reminder. This is being lived out in your lifetime, at least in part, Abram. Now, the title that Melchizedek assigns to God is El Elyon. That's Hebrew. It's translated God Most High. It's simply a name that focuses on God as all-powerful, kind of up high above it all, most high. The God that has to stoop down, in a sense, to see the affairs of men because he's so much high above him. And yet, he's not just high above. He also possesses, look at the phrase in the blessing, possessor of heaven and earth. He's not just above it, he's in it. He owns it. It's his. He created it. There's no doubt Melchizedek is referring not just to any God, but the God, one true God. He says this to Abram, blessed be Abram of God most high. You see what he did there? He just actually took Abram and said, this God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, he's your God, Abraham, isn't he? He's your God. Blessed be Abram of God Most High. Think about how beautiful that would have sounded to Abram's ears to hear his own name associated with as a possession of the name of God, right? Blessed be Abram, God Most High. And then finally, he ends the blessing with a proclamation that it was actually God all along who won the victory, He says, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. So Melchizedek attributes the victory to God, saying and reminding Abram, all the credit, Abram, belongs to God. It wasn't your strategy. It wasn't the might of your forces. It was God doing the work on your behalf. Now, I think that moment for Abram would have sort of created some space for reflection and contemplation. A lot like what Tim was leading us into earlier. So imagine the fury of battle, the excitement of victory, the busyness now of keeping up with all the possessions and the people and the slaves and the animals, and you come back, you're weary, you're excited, you're you're busy, and then you just get to rest and remember that it's not you who's in charge. It's God. 
That's this gift that Melchizedek is giving to Abram here. Now, how did Abram respond? Well, he receives it. How do we know that? Back in the ancient day, the lesser person never blessed the greater. There's always the greater blessing Abram. So Abram receives this kind of acknowledging the spiritual authority of Melchizedek. And not only that, but the end of verse 20 says Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all. Now this is fascinating. This was, in a sense, a tithe before it was written down in the Hebrew law. But this tithe, this tenth, would, was not for Melchizedek to honor Melchizedek. It was for Melchizedek to use as a mediator to God. So Abram in this moment, by giving the tithe, was essentially acknowledging Melchizedek's status as priest. You give the tithe to the priest, mediates between you and God. So that's what's going on with the tithe. Now, I mentioned before two kings offering something very different. You've seen what Melchizedek has offered, bread, wine, blessing. Let's see what the king of Sodom offers to Abram. Let's read verses 21 through 24. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, by the way, same title Melchizedek used, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Ain or Eskel and Mamre. Let them take their share. Now, what's going on here culturally? What's going on here historically? The king of Sodom was one of the losing kings. And all his power and all his stuff and all his slaves and all his people had been stripped away from him and he was left with nothing. And then a miracle happened. This man Abram, who wasn't even a warrior, wasn't even a king himself, wins this battle and is bringing all the stuff back down towards Sodom. Now, the stuff and the slaves and everything by right of the victor would have belonged to Abram, not Sodom. So I imagine the king of Sodom thinking, all right, I'm going to try to to wheel and deal, and I'm going to negotiate to see if I can get some of the stuff back. And maybe if I tell him, Abram, that he can just keep all the stuff with my blessing, all right, you can have it, that he'll give me the slaves. Because I know, the king of Sodom was thinking, that even if I lose the stuff now, if I get the workers back, if I get the slaves back, if I get the people, I will eventually become rich again as they give me a part of of their stuff, of their crops, of their animals. So the king of Sodom is trying to get back a little bit of what he lost, and Abram will have nothing to do with it. Fascinating Abram's response. He receives with open hands the gifts from Melchizedek, the priest, and the offer, the negotiation of Sodom, he has nothing to do with. He essentially says, I'll take everything that God has for me, but nothing from the king of the evil city, Sodom. So Abraham, after picking up his sword in the first half of chapter 14, opens his hands and says, here, king of Sodom, you keep this. I make no claim on it. It's obviously more important to you than it is to me. I've already received 
what I needed. The bread, the wine, the blessing. Here, you have it. Now, the reason that this was a big step of faith was because if Abram had kept all of that stuff, he would have been perceived in the region as a power player, as a strong, wealthy, powerful man. And he could have literally sort of built a kingdom from the foundation of the wealth of Sodom. Instead, Abram says, no, that's not the way God is going to fulfill his promise to me to be a blessed man and to bless the earth. I'm going to give back all the gold, all the livestock, all the slaves from this evil place, Sodom. I'm not going to try to to make God's promise happen of my own doing. I'm going to release it. This is the decision that Abram makes. Now, in my own imagination... I picture the king of Sodom smirking at Abram, thinking, ha, I get it all back. Abram could have been a wealthy, powerful man, but instead he has chosen to live small. Now, if we fast forward a few chapters in the book of Genesis, we'll see It was not Abram who was choosing to live small. Abram is learning to see through eyes of faith. Abram is learning to walk by faith, not by sight. Abram is learning that not everything that glitters is gold. Abram is learning that all the shiny things in life aren't necessarily what you really need. What you need is something entirely different. What Abram needed, what you and I need, is the intercessor, the mediator, the priest, the bread, the wine, the blessing. Now, before we can really apply this passage to our lives, I have to point out the enormous theological significance of this event in the unfolding of the story of the Bible, and in particular, this mysterious man, Melchizedek. I mentioned to you earlier, Melchizedek kind of disappears from the scene after this passage is done. Fast forward a thousand years after Abraham's time. King David, who's sitting on the throne, writes a psalm. It's Psalm 110. And in the psalm, he's talking about a greater king to come the king that we would refer to as Messiah. And Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. In other words, it's not about the current king. It's about the future king. It's about Messiah. Psalm 110 is looking ahead to the true king. And this is what David writes in Psalm 110. You don't need to turn there. I'm going to read it to you. David says this. He says, God has said that you, Messiah, you, king to come, will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, isn't that interesting? What David, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has done is reached back a thousand years into Genesis 14, this tiny little passage about this mysterious priest king. And he said, the one to come will be like Melchizedek. He'll be a priest like Melchizedek. Now, how would he be a priest like Melchizedek? Because the one to come is going to take the office of priest and the office of king, and he's going to bring them together once again. 
But this time, that blending together of the priest and the king will be eternal. It will be forever. Right? The Holy Spirit says, you, king to come, Messiah, will be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. In other words, a priest and a king together. That's what David says in Psalm 110. Now, those are the only times we hear about Melchizedek in the whole Old Testament. Fast forward another thousand years. After Jesus' life, death, resurrection, the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing about Jesus Christ. And he reaches all the way back to Psalm 110 and he quotes David's words, the prophecy about Messiah, about Melchizedek. And he says, the, the, the Melchizedek to come who combines priest and king for eternity has come and it is Jesus and he goes on to say, this is why we can stand before God because our priest is interceding for us even now. And that's the whole point of Hebrews chapters 5 through 7, which talks about Melchizedek. He says, he is the king priest who was prophesied and now has come. And he is our high priest. He is our high king. And by the way, men and women, this is why in our tradition we don't have the office of priest at least in the human context. We don't ask you to go into confessional booths and confess your sins to a priest because the doors of the throne room have been flung open. You have a priest, a permanent forever priest, the high priest who is Jesus Christ, your intercessor, your mediator. That's what Hebrews is saying. And it's all according to the pattern of this man from thousands of years ago, mysterious figure named Melchizedek. Now, you might summarize it this way. Melchizedek is so important in the Bible because he points us to Jesus. He gives a little bit of a tangible picture of what the purpose of Jesus Christ coming later would be all about. Melchizedek, king and priest. Jesus, king and priest forever. Melchizedek, Remember what his name means? King of righteousness. Jesus, the king of kings, who is the only righteous one before the Father. Melchizedek, king of Salem, the city of peace. Jesus Christ, he will rule from Jerusalem, the new Salem, the city of peace. And that city of peace will have no end. Now, you think this is all by accident? No way, no how, no chance. This is the Holy Spirit and the life of Abraham, the father of our faith, bringing this mysterious man to say, Abraham, even at the moment that you're at the top of your game, having won this victory over the kings, living by faith, experiencing the blessing of God, even at the top of your game, Abraham, you need a priest. You need an intercessor. I have brought to you this one who re-speaks my blessing and points you to the greater priest, the greater king who will come. That's what's happening in this passage. That's who Melchizedek points to. He points us to the great high priest, Jesus Christ. Now, how do we apply this to our lives If Abraham 
the father of our faith, way back. This great man of faith, right? When you think Abraham, you think of faith. It's what your brain goes to. If this great man of faith needed an intercessor, needed a mediator, needed a priest, how much more do you and I? So I want to talk about this from two angles. Some of you this morning have come into the room. You know, Tim mentioned earlier, we're all bringing stuff into the room, right? Some good, some bad, some joyful, some struggle. Strong faith, weak faith. Lloyd said last week, sometimes your faith is weak and sometimes it's weighty. Okay? There's some of you this morning, you've come in with weak faith. And specifically, you've come in thinking, I don't actually feel worthy for God to delight in me. I don't feel worthy to even sit in the presence of God. I don't feel worthy for him to call me beloved. I don't feel worthy for me to worship him. My heart's not in it. My mind's not in it. This is where a lot of us are at. You need a priest. But you don't just need any priest. You don't need a man-priest. You need a God-man-priest. You need the priest. Scripture tells us that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So for you this morning, whether you've put your faith in Jesus Christ previously or not, you have an opportunity again this morning to say, I am going to trust the righteousness of my mediator. I'm going to trust that he is good enough to bridge the gap between my sorry self, right, which is where we're all, we're all at, and the holiness of God. And it's not about me and the sin that I committed yesterday or the sin that I committed this morning or the wrongness of my attitude, the wrongness of my heart, my failure to love, my lack of faith. It's not about any of that. It's about the priest. It's about the mediator. It's about the one who not only offered the lamb on my behalf but was the lamb for me, who shed his own blood for me so that I could be approved of by the Father, not through my righteousness but through his it's good news. Some of you this morning may actually put your faith in that good news for the very first time. <sighs> Wouldn't that be exciting to cross from death to life, to cross from guilt-ridden struggle to feel good enough to reach God to knowing that you don't have to be good enough. There's only one who is. He died for you as your intercessor, your mediator, your priest. Some of you, you've trusted, you've believed that good news a long time ago. You've just been recently, you've just been like, I'm just struggling. I'm just lousy at this Christian life. Hear this. It's not about you. It's not about your righteousness or lack thereof. You can celebrate this morning too. There's another group of you who've been doing really well. Right? You, you woke up this morning just... Maybe, you, maybe you've already been worshiping even before you got in this building. You know, maybe you go to bed at night singing praise songs and you wake up in the morning singing praise songs. Maybe you got half the New Testament memorized and you're just, man, you're just doing it, right? You're, you're just, you're, you're living this way. And, and that's wonderful. <laughs> Great season of life for you. But over time, here's what happens. When, when, when we don't feel like we're struggling, we forget we need a mediator, right? We feel like, man, I kind of got this. Life's not perfect, but I kind of got this. I want you to feel, and just remember this throughout your life, when you're at that place, there should be a little bit of a warning light going off. 
I'm not desperately dependent on my mediator. I'm not desperately dependent. I have a little bit of self-righteousness sort of just sneaking in. And, and I'm not encouraging you to go out and just commit a bunch of sins, but I'm just encouraging you to recognize that you don't live a day without actually sinning, no matter how righteous you may feel. Because what is sin? It's a, it's a failure to live out the complete and whole law. It's a, it's a failure to, it's a missing of the mark, if you will, of the holiness of God. It's a failure to love God with your whole mind, whole strength. And it's a failure to love your neighbor as yourself. Which one of us can go even a day? You also have an intercessor. You also have a mediator. Oh, ones who are living at the top of your game like Abraham, you need a priest. So here's what I'm going to invite us to do. We've got one more way this morning that we want to open up some space for you to contemplate, to reflect. Um, the symbolism of the bread and the wine in the Melchizedek passage points us to the symbolism of the bread and the wine that Jesus Christ offered his followers. Did you catch that? Is it not remarkable that Melchizedek brings out bread and wine? And then thousands of years later, the greater Melchizedek, the true priest king, the true intercessor, the true high priest, lifts up the bread and breaks it. He says, this is my body. He lifts up the cup. He says, drink it. This is my blood. You see what he's doing? He's pointing to this once-for-all act that will make mediation, that will make intercession for mankind. He points us this morning to the same thing, and we're going to celebrate that. We're going to partake of that. So in a moment, the ushers are going to come down. They're going to start passing out the elements. Here's what I'd like you to do. Take, take that little piece of bread. Take that little cup. I don't want you to drink it, eat it yet. I want you to hold it. And as you hold it, and even as you're waiting for it to come, I want to invite you to reflect on a question. And the more you enter into this in your own heart, the more meaningful this experience of remembering will be for you. Here's the question. In what ways this morning do you need a mediator? In what ways do you need the priest? In what ways do you need someone, the someone, to stand in the gap between sinful you and holy God. Are you struggling right now? Let Jesus stand in the gap. Are you self-righteous right now? Let Jesus stand in the gap. Would you invite him to do that this morning by considering this question, what specific areas in my life right now this morning do I need a priest? As we reflect on that this morning, the servers will go ahead and pass the elements and then I'll come back up and lead us through partaking of them.